You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, beloved, we continue on in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans. This is the 44th of 48 sermons. Time passes. Passes quickly. We've acknowledged at several points now the pivot that Paul makes beginning in Romans 12, how he had expounded for 11 chapters the gospel effectively, and how we are most certainly saved by Jesus Christ and how we most certainly will be finally saved by him. But beginning in Romans 12, Paul turns to pointedly consider how we're then to live. It matters how we live as Christians. In particular, it matters how we live together in the community of the church. And so Paul writes several chapters of material to help us in that endeavor. In Romans 14, which is where we find ourselves now, through the early verses of Romans 15, Paul establishes this, that we as Christians are to mutually respect and bear with one another. If you understand that, you have understood the point of this chapter. We are called to patience with one another, charity toward each other, gentleness and mercy. If we come here to Romans 14, looking to be vindicated in our consumption or avoidance of food or drink, or in our choices of how we school our children or how we view politics, we have missed the point entirely. We are to love the members of the body of Christ, both weak and strong, in the way that Christ has loved us. That's the message. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking today pointedly at verses 13 through 23. Because of the connectedness of verses 1 to 12 and then our passage today, Inevitably, I'm kind of borrowing from and leaning on the message from last week. And so if you've yet to listen to it for whatever reason, if you were kept from being here last Sunday, it's on the website. I would commend it to you just so that you have a more full-orbed understanding of Romans 14. But I do want to spend a few moments now tracking with Paul's argument from verses 1 to 12 to pull us into our passage today. This will be worth the time spent because it will help us better understand the whole of chapter 14. In the first four verses of Romans 14, Paul articulates that the weak in faith are to be welcomed in the church. Amen. The weak in faith are to be welcomed, but quarreling and arguing over opinions is not the purpose of that welcoming. In the context, Opinions represent matters of wisdom and conscience or conduct. Christians can agree on Jesus. Christians can agree on the gospel, the primary matters of the faith, yet disagree over how to practically and functionally live out their Christian faith. To argue over such matters of wisdom and conscience is not good. 
And it is something that the weak in faith, says Paul, are uniquely prone to do. Paul gave an example. One Christian thinks that he can eat anything. The weak Christian, says Paul, eats only vegetables. Now, we're not given details, but the point is not in the details. The point is that the weak believer thinks that he is bound to laws and standards to which he is not bound. And Paul says, such a Christian is weak in faith. Meaning, the weaker believer does not trust the teaching of Scripture when it comes to freedom in various matters. But he is bound in his conscience. Paul gets right to the inappropriate tendencies of the strong and the weak. He says, let not the one who eats, i.e. the strong one, despise the one who abstains, i.e. the weak one. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed those who abstain. God has welcomed those who eat. Paul's point is, if you either despise or condemn your brother or sister over a matter of wisdom, you have rejected the one whom God has welcomed. In particular, when it comes to passing judgment on others in the church, Paul's really clear. We all serve Jesus. He is our master. He is the one in authority over our consciences. All of us as his disciples stand one way. We stand only in his power and grace. And all of the saints, whether weak or strong in faith, belong to Jesus, and he will uphold us all. In verses 5 to 12, Paul gave another example, this time of the observance of special days. Paul's word to both those who observed these days and to those who didn't was this. You both desire to love, serve, and honor the Lord with thankfulness in your conduct. And therefore, even though you disagree about how best to honor the Lord when it comes to the observance of days or not, you are to love and respect one another. Paul again grounds what he's writing in Christ. He doubles down on the fact that we are not our own. We belong to Jesus in life and in death. That's why he lived and why he died, so that we would belong to him. And so what are we doing if we belong to Christ What are we doing judging and despising one another? And then Paul goes to the judgment seat. He goes to the fact that we will all stand before the Lord when this is all over. In short, his point is that we are not to judge one another because Christ alone sits on that throne. And as we look forward to that day, When we will stand before Jesus, this should evoke in us the greatest humility. On that day, if we were to stand in ourselves, we thought about this last week, we would be ruined. The only way that we will stand before Christ is to stand in him by faith. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Christ for us. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust that we've done enough, that we could do enough. We trust Christ in our place. In him alone do we stand. 
And so what kind of effect should that have on how we treat each other? We would concern ourselves with our own conduct, not so much with what everybody else is doing. We wouldn't judge the consciences of fellow believers, but we would leave that up to Christ. We wouldn't be sharpshooters. You know, we wouldn't be looking for specks in other people's eyes all the time. We would certainly seek to help our brothers and sisters, but we would not judge them. That's verses 1 to 12. Having done that, let's look to verses 13 through 23. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan is simple. I've got two parts and a conclusion for us today. Two parts and then a conclusion. The first part, we're going to be looking at the text in two points. The second part, kind of like last week, I'm going to offer further reflection, application, and pastoral comments from Romans 14, holistically, and then we'll conclude with Christ. Part one, the text in two points. Point one of part one is this, love and liberty. Love and liberty, verses 13 to 19. Let's look there. In verse 13, it begins with the word, therefore, always a very useful word. In light of what we just considered, right? In light of that articulation of Paul's argument from verses 1 to 12, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Let's not do that, right? Instead, let this be our MO, to never put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister. Let's live like that. We shouldn't do anything that would cause another saint to sin. This counsel from Paul clearly seems to be aimed at the stronger brother, the stronger sister in the church. If a weaker brother has scruples about a particular issue, the stronger brother is not to flaunt his stronger faith, right? The stronger brother shouldn't talk down to the weaker one. Nor 
Should the stronger brother talk the weaker brother into doing something that is against his conscience? Verse 14, Paul goes on. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, i.e., what we eat or drink or use. I know and I'm persuaded that nothing in and of itself is unclean. So notice, Paul, again, is not arguing for indifference about these matters, as though doctrine and truth don't matter. That is not what he's doing. Paul knows it to be the case in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, because Jesus had made that plain. And Paul is persuaded personally on the matter. So clearly, this is the position that he wants all believers to come to hold. Yet, his emphasis is what? His emphasis is on mutual respect and love and charity amongst the saints. Paul goes on. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, before anybody gets too worked up here, this is not a statement of theological or moral relativism. Like, if you think it's bad, it's bad. If you think it's good, it's good. It's not what he's saying. The meaning is simply this. If people do what they think God forbids, then in their conscience, they are guilty. Makes sense. If we do what we think in our soul God forbids, then in our conscience, we're guilty. So here's the takeaway from verse 14. Saints who do not know the revealed will of God should be taught. Amen. They should have their consciences trained according to the Scriptures. Amen. But they should never be compelled to do what they themselves think God forbids. Shouldn't do that. It's harmful to people to compel them to do something that they think is sin. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Suffice it to say, it is not love that would prompt us to grieve a brother or sister by what we eat or drink or do. It is not love that would prompt us to do that. It's something else. The point of this verse is quite simple. We ought not use the good things that God has given us in a way that disregards love for our fellow saints. We should use and enjoy the good things God has given us. Absolutely, praise be to his name. But we ought never use and enjoy things in such a way that would disregard love for one another. Now, it doesn't seem in this case, this is worth stating right now, kind of before we get too far in today. It does not seem in the context of the church of Rome that the weaker saints in the church were trying to force their convictions on the whole. It's not what's going on. They were genuinely troubled by the eating of meat, genuinely plagued in their consciences by what some of their brethren were doing. That matters because nowhere in Romans 14 does Paul indicate that the convictions of the weak are to bind the entire congregation in any sense. The call is for charity amongst us. Paul goes on 
in verse 15, second sentence of the verse. By what you eat, insert or drink or do, right? Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Again, he grounds his exhortations in Christ and what Christ did for us. Do not cause another saint to stumble into sin through your exercise of Christian freedom. If Christ was willing to lay his life down for the sake of the weak, should we not use our liberty carefully? If Christ gave his life to save the weak of whom we are all weak, if he did that, should we not be willing to even lay our liberty down for the sake of weaker brothers and sisters in the church? How unchristlike it would be to just run roughshod over the weak in our midst. We'll do more application later, but I'm going to just say this now as well. May we never be the kind of church, and I'll even say this word, may we never be the kind of reformed church where doctrinal precision prompts love for one another. May we not be. Those things are not mutually exclusive. May we never be a church where we rightly value and discuss sound doctrine with great precision and zeal. But when we are asked to exercise our Christian liberty carefully, or when we're asked to lay it down, we balk. Let's not live like that. Let's not be the kind of church where we are so concerned about our rights. Don't trample on my rights, bro. I'm free to do this. How dare you take it from me? Let's not have that posture where we're more concerned about our liberties not being trampled upon, which puts us in a place where we don't have proper regard for the work of God in other, perhaps more tender saints. May we consider each other in all that we do. Verse 16, we continue on. You see, I trust how important these things are for a church. How wonderfully practical. And how when these things are not maintained, division occurs. It's just like popcorn everywhere. Verse 16, a better rendering, just be brief with this, would be so do not let your good be spoken of as evil. That would be a better way for this to be brought across. In other words, use your Christian liberty well. Simple exhortation. Do not conduct yourself in a way that would bring harm to one of Christ's sheep. Do not conduct yourself in such a way that would do damage to the church and the unity of the body. Do not conduct yourself in a way that would come across as though you have no reverence for God. Don't let what is good be spoken of as evil. Right? Now, this doesn't mean we're called to be a bunch of sticks in the mud. I don't want to hang out with people like that, personally. I trust you don't either. I'm not called to be a bunch of sticks in the mud. That's not the point. Simply means that wisdom and love for each other is what's required all the time. And these things govern our exercise of Christian freedom. We'll talk more about this later. Paul and the other apostles with him could have given us a code, detailed playbook. Do this, don't do that. Could have done that. Didn't. 
called us to something better, something harder, to love each other. Love is what governs our exercise of freedom, not a code. Verse 17, Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's he getting at? He's getting at this, that we can lay down our liberties. We can do that without having to worry that we're going to miss out on something. We can lay down our Christian freedoms, liberties to do this or eat this or drink that, because we do not have to worry that we will lose anything of value in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink. It is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. The kingdom of Christ is built on these things. Having said that, anything that is necessary to protect or build up the kingdom of Christ, we don't lay down. I trust that's clear to you. Anything necessary to protect the church, to build up the kingdom of Christ, we don't lay down. But everything else, we're happy. Happy to lay it down for the good of our brothers and sisters and for the upbuilding of the church. And we're not going to miss out. Despite all of our feelings to the contrary, we will not miss out on anything meaningful. In verses 18 and 19, Paul exhorts us to serve Christ in ways that make for peace and in ways that build up the church. Yet again, here we are called to not have an eye merely for ourselves. We're not to look and think and live for us only. We are called to not have an eye to only our own interests or even our own growth, but we're called to have an eye for the peace and the growth of the whole body. Think about how good and effective it is when all the members have that perspective. When we all are thinking, not for my own benefit or gain, but I'm out for your good and your good, and your good, and our good, and we're all thinking like that. The plan of God is good and wise. That's point one, love and liberty. Point two of part one, love, liberty, and living by faith. From verses 20 to 23, love, liberty, and living by faith. In verses 20 and 21, Paul reiterates, when it comes to food and drink and things of this nature, all things are indeed clean. But we are to take great care that our eating and drinking should never be the cause of another Christian stumbling into sin. It's as though Paul says this. Like, you want to paraphrase? I'll offer one. He says, look, meat and wine are good. But to harm your brother or sister is not. It's verses 20 and 21. Meat and wine are good, but to harm your brother or your sister is not. Verse 22. To the Christian who is strong in his or her faith, having a robust understanding of Christian liberty, and therefore is able to eat and drink freely, to that person, Paul says, enjoy that before the Lord. 
That's a blessed place to be if you have these understandings and you're free in your conscience. You're not bound by things that you're not bound by Scripture. If you know the liberties you have in Christ and you can enjoy those, enjoy them before God. It's a wonderful place to be. Implicit in this verse is that the strong in faith, while they enjoy these things before the Lord, are not to boast of their strong faith publicly. They're not to make a show of their liberty publicly. Nor are they to sit high upon their strong faith and look down on other weaker saints. Verse 23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So twice in our passage, Paul has stated that all things are clean to eat and drink. But to the believer who thinks that it is sin to partake, he or she should not consume it. That's been his word two different times. The point here, again, is not that our consciences trump biblical doctrine. That would be a foolish conclusion. The point here is that Christians are to live sincerely by faith in all things. There is the possibility for the weaker saint to double down on his error. Right? Not only being weak in faith, does he not take God at his word regarding food and drink being declared clean, he might also be compelled, perhaps by a stronger brother or sister in the church, to engage in what he thinks is sinful. And things go from bad to worse. Not only are you bound to laws and standards that you're not actually bound to by God, but then you're violating your own conscience at every turn, and you're internally wrecked by that. That's no way to be. The instructions of Paul here in this text are very helpful. And we have to think about our Christian lives, not just today or tomorrow or next month or next year. We've got to think big picture, long game, as we all are learning and growing and being sanctified and becoming more mature. The call to gentleness and patience is critical because I trust that we all think differently than we did five or 10 years ago. And we will think differently yet again in another five or 10 or 20 years should the Lord tarry and give us life. These words of the apostle are helpful for unity and love and peace in the church. I trust you see that. So let's move to part two. I want to offer some additional reflection, application, and pastoral considerations from all of Romans 14. Four points here. So four subpoints in part two. I'm killing the note-takers today, I know. Number one, my heading says, let's do some self-assessment. Let's do some self-assessment. So in everything that I'm about to say, I want you to know, I have no individuals or groups of people in my mind. I'm thinking about my own frame, and I know that what's true of me is true of us. And so no need to take offense, no need to feel singled out. May we all... May the Lord give us all grace and humility and eyes to see ways that we fail in these matters because we all do. Amen? Let that be our posture. 
I am with you. This is a we and us thing. This is not me to you, okay? Telling you to get it together. It's not what this is. I trust I'm clear. Here's where I'm coming from. In the church, there is a lot of immaturity masquerading as maturity. I'll say that again. In the church, there is a lot of immaturity masquerading as maturity. This takes various forms, meaning we tend to value the wrong stuff. Things that we think are marks of Christian maturity might not actually be, and things that are really marks of maturity we might not value like we should. Just a thought. Takes various forms. We're just going to consider several in no particular order. First example of immaturity masquerading as maturity. An individual who has a very high Bible IQ, a lot of theological knowledge, read a bunch of things, a robust understanding of Christian freedom, but has an unwillingness to lay down liberties for the sake of the weak. High Bible knowledge, theological acumen, well-read, understands Christian freedom, but is unwilling to lay down liberty for the sake of the weak. Let's ask ourselves, what do I think I'm losing if I were to set down my liberty for the sake of my brother or for the sake of my sister? What do I think I'm losing? Or ask this, if, this, if it bothers me, the idea of not doing something that I'm free in Christ to do, if that idea bothers me, why does it bother me so much? Maybe I care more about my gratification and enjoyment and pleasure than I do the well-being of others. Maybe I'm more concerned with my rights than I am the good of my neighbor in the building up of the body of Christ. Beloved, living sacrifices, right? That's what we're called to be. Living sacrifices are willing to lay down our liberties for those ends, the good of our brothers and sisters and the building up of the church. And living stones, which we all are, being built into the dwelling place of God, are willing to do whatever we can for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. May it be. Second example of immaturity masquerading as maturity. Again, high Bible IQ. Again, a lot of theological knowledge. But having an exacting posture toward other saints. Let's ask ourselves. When my brothers and sisters think of me, what do they think? It's a good question. If my brothers and sisters were asked to describe me with a few words, what would those words be? Let's ask ourselves, are there ways that I look down on others in the church that are affecting my relationships? Are there ways that I'm not assuming well of my brothers and sisters that are affecting my interactions? Yet another example. A person who is very serious about every matter of wisdom and conduct and then binds the consciences of others where the Bible does not. See, we tend to think, I said this last week, we tend to think that if somebody has convictions about everything and has tons of scruples, that that is inherently mature. It's not. 
to have scruples about everything is not inherently godly. And remember this, we have to accept and embrace this reality that we can agree on the clear, high-level truth of Scripture. We can agree on the clear principles of Scripture, but yet disagree about how to practically and functionally live out those principles. That's possible in this life, in the church. That's possible. So ask yourself, do I have a category for that? Do I have a category for that, that we can agree about doctrine, but yet we might disagree about the practical living out of that? Do I have a category for that? Ask ourselves, when it comes to issues of wisdom and conscience, do I embrace this, that my brothers and sisters could be presented with the same set of variables that I am and yet come to a different conclusion? Do I have a category for that? Last example that I want to give of just immaturity masquerading as maturity. Having, again, a bunch of scruples about various matters of wisdom and conscience and conduct, hoisting those scruples on others, leaning on them to share in them, and then impugning their motivations when they don't. Thinking less of you because you don't agree with me. Let's ask ourselves, in all of our relationships, what's my goal? In all of my relationships, what is my aim? Am I aiming to help my brothers and sisters legitimately? Or do I just like to meddle in other people's lives? Am I aiming to help my brothers and sisters be conformed to Christ's image? Or am I really kind of trying to conform people to my own image? Let's ask ourselves that question. We're all prone to these errors. We are. I trust every one of us has felt some sense of conviction in how we've assessed ourselves or tried to do that even this morning. This is worth further reflection this week as I've undoubtedly felt conviction in writing these things to say today. It's good that we would assess ourselves in light of God's word. Point two of just the reflection application pastoral considerations. The header for point two is this, Christian liberty and issues of conscience. Christian liberty and issues of conscience. What I want to talk about for just a moment in light of Romans 14 is how we aim to roll here at CBC when it comes to these things. How are we going to live together? Few things are not up for debate. One, if the Bible calls it sin, so do we. Amen? Amen. You can participate. You can say things. If the Bible does not call it sin, we do not either. Amen. Next, if the scripture binds the conscience, so do we. If the scripture does not bind the conscience, we don't either. And in it all, we aim to preach and teach God's word rightly so that our consciences might be trained according to the book. I mentioned this earlier. I'm going to say it again. The apostles could have given us a code, but they didn't. Paul could have said, Beloved, under no circumstances ever should anyone ever conceivably ever eat meat. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. What's his word? You know the answer. What's his exhortation? What governs our exercise of freedom? 
love. Love for one another. That is how we live. Consider others as more significant than yourself. Make decisions that way. Don't just be concerned with your satisfaction, gratification, enjoyment, pleasure. Think about your brother and your sister. Think about how things will land on them or affect them. Now, let's be honest. We would prefer that Paul had given us a code, would we not? We love that stuff. We love codification. Give me the 17 guidelines, Paul. Give me the 39 principles on Christian liberty and issues of conscience. And for many of us in the room that are disciplined folks, it's like, man, we'll knock those things out the park. Give it to us. But he didn't. May that instruct us, even in our interactions. The apostles told us to do something harder and better, to love each other. Let's talk practically for just a minute. How should we interact with each other over matters of liberty and conscience? I'll give an example. What I'm about to say, I trust, is very normal in this congregation already, and may it be only increasingly so. What we're doing, let's do it all the more. For example, if you have somebody over to your house, and you are a brother or sister who consumes alcohol, yes, I said it. We're just just bringing it all out. If that's you, because you're free in Christ to consume it. An appropriate question for you to ask somebody the first time that you have them over, and you don't know their life, their history, or where they stand, is to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, does it bother you in any way if I have a drink in front of you? That is what we should do. And that is not a weird thing to do. That is not an awkward question to ask. It shouldn't be. That is a loving, considerate, thoughtful thing to ask. Let's not make it weird. You know, like in the way we ask it or in the way we react. This kind of consideration should be normal amongst Christians. There, you could insert any number of other issues, but that's a big in our day. And then, having asked the question, having reached an understanding, we just go about spending time together and enjoying each other. We move on. And it ain't a big deal either way to any of the parties involved. May that be how we live. Our posture in our church should be this. When it comes to issues of conscience and Christian liberty, there will be some in any number of arenas who will exercise those freedoms. There will be some who don't. And we will not cast shade either way. The ones who partake do not cast shade and look down on those who don't. And the ones who don't, who abstain, do not look down and cast shade on the ones who do. That's how we will live. And our aim in all of that is to seek the peace and the growth of the whole body here. This isn't about any one person's preference. This isn't about any one person's liberty. This is about our collective growth in peace and love and joy and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be our aim. May we view all of our conduct and all of our interactions through that lens. And so ask yourself, if in any situation or in any conversation, ask yourself, is what I'm doing good for the peace and growth of the body of Christ at CBC? Is how I'm engaging 
in conversation over matters of wisdom and conscience, promoting peace and growth in the church? Ask yourself that question. Point three, on the weaker brother. I want to talk about this for a minute. Point three, on the weaker brother. So there's a lot of confusion from my perspective. There's a lot of confusion on what the weaker brother or who the weaker brother is. So let's clarify. The weaker brother is not a hypothetical person. You understand that? The weaker brother is not a hypothetical person. The weaker brother is not the most tender conscience that might conceivably be in the room either. So what is the weaker brother, Justin? The weaker brother is a real person in our midst who would be genuinely grieved by something that we're doing or who would be led directly into sin by something that we're doing. The weaker brother, to repeat, is a real person in our midst who would be genuinely grieved by something we're doing or who would be led directly into sin by something we're doing. Not a hypothetical person, not the most tender conscience that could conceivably ever walk in this room. So let me give a word now to the stronger brothers and sisters among us, to those who maybe have been a Christian for some time, who know doctrine, who have a robust understanding of Christian liberty. Let me speak to those of us who, whom that might describe this morning. May we never incite weaker saints to violate their consciences. You hear that? May we never incite weaker saints to violate their consciences, ever. Rather, may the strong in our midst seek to build up the weak. Seek to help strengthen them so that they might grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And like I said a minute ago, in five or ten years, let's look up and see how things are going. Let that be the posture. But a brief word to those among us who might be weaker brothers or sisters. And realize that rarely does a person fall in the strong or weak category across the board. There are ways that we're strong. There are ways that we're weak, right? Even when it comes to particular matters of conscience, even. So a word to those among us who might be weaker. The strong among us are to live in all the ways that we've been considering for the last two weeks. Love, charity, patience, mercy. Laying down liberty, all those things. But when you, as a weaker brother or sister, find yourself offended by another saint exercising his or her liberty, ask yourself these questions. Ask, am I truly grieved by what's going on here? Is my brother's conduct legitimately causing me to sin? Is my sister's conduct really doing me harm? Or is it possible that I'm wanting to control and regulate things that are really just up to the Lord? And then, brothers and sisters, seek to grow in your understanding. Seek to continue to train your conscience according to the Word of God. Point four. A necessary caveat. That's the header. A necessary caveat. So I'm taking my inspiration here from how Paul rebuked Peter in Galatians 2. You guys familiar with that account? Yeah. Peter was acting one way with the Gentiles in Antioch. 
And then men from James in Jerusalem, Jewish brothers, come rolling into town. And Peter changed his conduct in terms of how he was interacting with Gentile Christians, and what he was doing. And Paul rebukes him, rebuked him publicly, he said, to his face. I'm taking my inspiration from that. It's critical that we remember we happily lay down our liberty for the good of a brother or sister. We happily do that. But anything that is necessary to protect or build up the kingdom of Christ, we do not lay down. This is where wisdom is required. If the gospel is obscured, if Christ is obscured by things that are going on, if Christians, like well-meaning, sincere Christians are being led astray, we don't, we don't stand for that. R.C. Sproul is a, was a pastor and theologian that went to be with the Lord six years ago. Many in the room may be familiar with R.C.'s ministry and maybe have benefited from him over the years. I know that I have. Well, there's an urban legend story about him along these lines. It happened years ago. There was a dinner meeting with R.C. and a few other members of a, a parachurch ministry that he was a part of. They were going to dinner with some potential donors like big donors for this ministry endeavor. So they go to eat. You know, you sit down at the table. It's a typical spread, you know, and oftentimes the wine glasses are upside down. You know how this goes. So the server comes over to the table and asks, hey, can I get you anything to drink besides water? And one of the, the individuals at the table, a potential donor, takes the cup, right, puts her hands on top of it, and says, of course not, we're Christians. To which R.C. Sproul, as the story goes, without missing a beat, says, in that case, I'll have a scotch. The point is what? We're not going to allow the gospel to be obscured. And for this person, who may not know what Christianity is about, to think that Christianity is about eating or drinking or not eating or not drinking that this is about morality rather than understanding that it is about Christ for sinners. So we use wisdom and we exercise it so that we are thinking well together about when to lay liberty down and when to take a stand for gospel clarity that protects the church and builds it up. So now I want to conclude our time by considering the love of Jesus for us. So we're going to consider our Savior. And I'm going to encourage you. I just want to talk with you for a second before we even do this. So I'm going to pull back the curtain for you. If we are going to have a chance of loving one another the way that Romans 14 calls us to, it will be because we're Christ's. If we're going to have a chance to love each other the way that Romans 14 calls us to, it's because we know him and love him. And here's the thing. We will love this way because we know that he loves us. And we, I'm using this word intentionally, and we feel that he loves us. That will empower us in laying down liberty and bearing with each other and being patient and gentle and merciful if we consider how he loves us and how patient and merciful he is toward us.
That's my MO here. So I'm going to encourage you to put yourselves, as we consider our Savior and some of the things that he did and said, I'm going to encourage you to put yourselves there with him. Put yourselves in the place of the people who interacted with Christ. Think and feel what they must have felt. And as you listen, turn from yourself. Whether you are already a Christian or whether you're not, turn from yourself to him. Cast yourself on him. Let yourself feel things for your Savior. For me, I don't know if you'd feel this way or not, last kind of front-loading comment. It's hard to conceive of what God is like if you're anything like me. He is immense and vast. God is a spirit. That can be hard for my brain and my heart to put my arms around. But what a kindness of God that his greatest and final revelation came in human form through his son, through his person and work. You remember what Jesus said to Philip in John 14. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know more of what your God is like, read of Christ. Read of how he walked and spoke and taught, healed and loved and died, kept the law and raised himself from the dead. And we'll know what God's like. All right, so let's do this. John chapter 11, you remember this. Lazarus has died. Put yourself there, though, with Mary and Martha. Death is terrible. A loved one dies and there's heartbreak. There's great grief in the situation that Jesus walks into. People are gripped by the reality of death and the finality of it. This person I love is gone. And you remember what Jesus asks one of Lazarus' sisters, his word to her. As he walks into the situation, he says, do you believe that your brother will live again? Put yourself there. Do you believe that your brother will live again? Yes. On the resurrection on the last day, Lord, I believe that. And then he looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm here. Whoever believes in me, though he die, in this most horrific thing that has occurred, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he'll live again. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? Yes, Lord, I believe. How kind of the Savior to ask this question at that moment. The only thing that could ever give comfort in the face of the horror and finality of death, I am the resurrection and the life. You'll live if you're in me. Do you believe that? Yes, I don't know everything, Lord, but I believe that. He loves us. You remember the woman caught in adultery. The whole thing goes down and the famous, you know, let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone, that whole thing. But then what does he say to her? Jesus, he looks at her when everybody's scattered. He's no doubt terrified, ashamed. He says, woman, where are they? Who has condemned you? 
And she says, no one, Lord. There's nobody left. Neither do I, he said. Now go, and now on, from now on, sin no more. Right? He loves us. You remember the woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years of suffering, of being unclean, right? And all that that meant in the society, marginalized and outcast. You know the account, huge throng of people around Christ, and she's thinking, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, he's the only one who can help me. She does. Jesus stops the whole parade and asks a question, who touched me? Now, do you think he didn't know? Of course he knew. He wanted to have the interchange. How does it go? You remember. She comes trembling, the text says. Mark 5. She comes trembling and falls down before him and told him everything. Told him everything about what she'd been through, her guilt, her shame, her fear, all of that. She tells him everything, and I trust told him, I thought if I could just touch you, all would be well. What does he say? Looks at her, he says, daughter, daughter, term of endearment, you're mine, right? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. How he loves us. Put yourself there. The blind man, blind from birth, whose sight is restored, he doesn't know everything at first. He's called before the religious authorities the first time, and he just says, all I know is this man, Jesus, healed me. Doesn't know anything else. Just know that happened. He's called before the authorities a second time. He says some strong stuff challenges the religious leadership, and he's thrown out of the synagogue for it. And then what does Jesus do? Goes and finds him. He heard, Jesus heard that he'd been thrown out of the synagogue. He goes and he finds him and he asks the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Sought him out. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? You have seen him, says Christ. And it is he who is speaking to you, Bob, Alex, Mary Beth. You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you, to which the man responds, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You remember a deaf man, one of several, that Jesus gave his hearing to. Imagine what it must have been like with all the hoopla around Christ as a deaf person. Can't hear anything, just see the madness that's going on. But all you know is that he comes to you, he kneels down to you, looks up to heaven and sighs and puts his fingers in your ears and you hear. Stoops down to you and heals you of your infirmity. John chapter 10, he says that he's the good shepherd that he calls his own sheep by name. Again, by name. Blair, Allison, Abby, Gail, 
by name. And he leads us out. He says, I'm not going to run away when something comes to harm you because I love you. Others might, I won't. I'll go so far as to lay my life down for you and I'll take it up again. This is what the Father has given me to do. And I give you eternal life. I give it to you. And no one will ever take you from me, Tyler. It's how he loves us. That's why we're Christians. That's why we're here. John 13, he's about to die. Puts a towel around his waist and starts washing the disciples' feet. You remember how Peter responds to that. Lord, this ain't right. You shouldn't do this. What does he say? If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. I'm going to wash you. John 14, those first three verses. Make this personal. I am going to prepare a place for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. He's saying it to you and to me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I would not tell you, Chris. I would not tell you, Rob, if this wasn't the case. I will come back for you. I'm going to bring you to be with me where I am. This is how he loves us. Feel that. Then finally, the cross, where he's mocked and he's spit upon and he's beaten, he's taunted, he hangs there, pleads that the Father would forgive his murderers. He was forsaken by God and his humanity so that we never would be. He cries, It's finished. He takes his life up again. He ascends. He intercedes for us and he reigns now. And he says about it all, behold, I'm making all things new. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Surely, I'm coming soon. And between now and then, don't worry. I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. Charles Spurgeon said this, my master is made of tenderness. He melts with love. So all true souls who love him, copy him in this and ever let your hearts be touched with a fellow feeling for the suffering and the sinning. May it be. In light of how Jesus loves us, what else would we do but bear with each other? What else would we do but be patient and gentle? What else would we do but lay down our liberties whenever that's necessary for the good of a fellow believer? What else would we do but seek to contribute to peace and unity in this congregation? What else would we do but seek to mutually build one another up in him? May it be. Let's pray.